Welcome to the Good Shepherd Church podcast. Good Shepherd is a gospel-centered church plant in Southeast Lakeland, Florida, and our vision is to join God's mission to see a glorious city filled with disciples of Jesus who are secure as children of God, connected as the family of God, and engaged as stewards of God's love to their neighbors and beyond. Here you will find sermons and other resources to help root and equip you in your true identity in Christ. We're glad you're here. Hey there, everybody. Uh, Glad to be with you this afternoon, whether you are here in person or whether you're here with us on the live stream. um, Glad to be uh, with you today this afternoon, not morning. I'm going to get it right one of these days. Um, So we are jumping into the second week of our series that we've just begun in James. And um, I'm going to start similar to Amy with a little bit of participation. You don't have to actually do this out loud. You can just do it in your own head. Okay. um, It's a game called Whose Fault Is It? Ready? No, no, no. Just in your head. Just in your head. Okay. You stub your toe. And then you let out a very loud curse word of your choice. Uh, is it the curb's fault that you stubbed your toe? Yeah. And that you let out that curse word. Uh, a driver in front of you cuts you off and you lay on your horn and you ride their bumper. Whose fault is it? Is it the driver's fault that you lay on your horn and rode your bumper? Or not? Uh, A family member gets on your last nerve and you blow up. You've had a hard day. You've had a hard day. It's been a long day. You've been at work and you blow up. Is it the family member's fault? Life doesn't go like you want it. And you blame God. And you're angry at him. Uh, And you find cynicism and bitterness beginning to settle in your heart? Is it God's fault? C.S. Lewis describes it this way. When I come to my evening prayers and try to reckon up the sins of the day, nine times out of ten, the most obvious is some sin against charity. I have sulked or snapped or sneered or snubbed or stormed. And the excuse that immediately springs to my mind is that the provocation was so sudden and unexpected I was caught off my guard. I had no time to collect myself. Now, that may be an extenuating circumstance as regards those particular acts. They would obviously be worse if they had been deliberate and premeditated. On the other hand, surely what a man does when he's taken off his guard is the best evidence what sort of man he is. Surely what pops out before the man has time to put on a disguise is the truth. If there are rats in the cellar, you are most likely to see them if you go in very suddenly. But the suddenness does not create the rats. It only prevents them from hiding. In the same way, the suddenness of the provocation does not make me an ill-tempered man. It only shows what an ill-tempered man I am. The rats are always there in the cellar. But if you go in shouting and noisily, they will have taken cover before you switch on the light. There's rats in our cellars, y'all. What James is about to point out to us is two points. One, there's rats in the cellar. Temptation is real. 
Uh, and, and this temptation draws us in almost at every point. But then the second point is we've got to call the exterminator then. How do, we, how do we guard ourselves against these rats that are all in our cellars? James 1, 13 through 18 answers this question. So let's read this together. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it has fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there's rats in our cellar. Lord Jesus, there's sin in our hearts. Lord Jesus, there's sin in our minds. Lord Jesus, there is contempt. Uh, there is anger. There is bitterness. There is hatred. There is lust. Uh, and there is all measure of other things. Many of which, and much of which, we don't even realize. Root us out. Like we just... We're taught, Spirit, part of your job is to show us just how bad off we really are. But the only reason you would do that, the only reason you would point out just how bad we are is to show us how good you are. Because for the degree of badness that we see in us, we see to that same degree just how far you had to go to save us. Glorify Jesus by your word in James. We pray in your name. Amen. So like I said, there's really kind of two movements in the text today, two main themes. <clears throat> the first is temptation's cause. Uh, where does temptation come from? And in a sense, what's the cycle? How, how does something move from just uh, a temptation that may be in your mind or in your, in your heart? When does it cross the line? And what are, the, what are the, the movements by which it crosses into something destructive? And then secondly, once it does cross that line into something destructive, how do we cure it? How do we, how do we rid ourselves more and more and, and fight the fight of faith every morning, every afternoon, every night of every day? Because we know two things, sin and misery indwells from the first day of our birth to the last day where either Jesus comes to meet us or we go to be with him. How do we fight that fight well? and with joy, and with hope, and with peace. So let's look at temptation's cause first. There, there's an old gospel song, and Brad Paisley, I feel like I keep quoting uh, country lyrics, so sorry. <laughs> sorry for all of you who don't like country music, but Brad Paisley redid this, and it's this song called Farther Along. Um, and here's, here's how it starts. Tempted and tried, we're often made to question why we must suffer year after year, being accused by those of our loved ones, even when we've walked 
in God's holy fear. And then here's the chorus. Farther along, we'll know more about it. Farther along, we'll understand why. Cheer up, my brother. Live in the sunshine. We'll understand it all by and by. It wouldn't be a good gospel song without the words by and by in there. Those first three words really encapsulate the, thought, the flow of thought from verse 1 to verse 18 here. Last week we talked about, if you remember, verse 2 kind of summarizes the, the thought of last week's sermon, which is what? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you experience trials of many kinds. Uh, and so the, the idea of being tempted and being tried are two very closely related ideas. So now this week, God is saying, yes, I am sovereign over all of your trials. And hopefully last week, that was the main theme that was driven home. God is sovereign over even the worst thing that happens to you. And if so, then you can have hope to move with your head up into whatever that thing is, knowing that there's resurrection and redemption on the other side. Now this week is, here's what God knows through James and what he wants to communicate to us is that when you experience trials, you are going to be tempted. And you are going to be tempted in a whole myriad of ways. And so now he wants to, like a good pastor, he wants to speak into what are some ways that you will be tempted and then what are some ways that you can fight the good fight of faith. So let's start in verse 13. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he tempts no one. So he's saying, yes, I am sovereign over all of your trials, but I am not to blame for the way that you respond. And what we read in verse 13 is that that is all happening inside yourself. Trials, though, are a giant source of temptation. I mean, just, just think of the last time in your life that something didn't go your way particularly when something didn't go your way and you had no control to stop it. How does your heart tend to handle those kinds of situations? When you feel out of control, when you feel suffering coming at you from every side, when you can't find joy, happiness, peace, or hope in anything vertically or anything horizontally, how do you begin to handle that? How, where does your heart go? If you're anything like me, most of the time when we don't get our way, our minds and our hearts go haywire. And then you can almost feel your heart searching, searching for any kind of comfort, searching for any kind of hope, anything to happy our hearts, anything to quiet our minds. And so James uses two metaphors here. All the way throughout this book, he's going to use a number of different metaphors, and they're really helpful word pictures. So he uses two metaphors here to describe, here's what temptation is like. And here's the first one. Fishing. Who likes to fish? This is what it's like. When, uh, move on to verse 14 then. He says, when each person is tempted, he is lured and enticed. Not by God. What does it say? By his own desire. It's already dwelling inside of there. Lured and enticed. This word for enticed is like, if you've ever gone fishing for catfish, you know one of the things that are, are great for catching catfish is a chicken liver, right? And so you hook that chicken liver on and you put a weight on it. You don't need a bobber because it goes all the way to the bottom and you zip that thing out there and it sinks to the bottom. Being enticed 
is like the catfish at the bottom of the lake who smells and sees that chicken liver bobbing there at the bottom of the lake. And you begin to say, hmm, that looks kind of good. Wow, that smells kind of good. And, and the closer I get to it, the more I want it. And it looks, it's good to the eyes, it's good to, I bet it's going to taste great. And you begin to be enticed, to be drawn in closer and closer and closer. And then here's the, the idea behind the word lured. You chomp. And what happens when you chomp on that chicken liver? Bzzz, you're caught. You're snagged. And in one sense, you're being dragged in a way that you don't even want to go anymore, but you're stuck. You're hooked. And now it begins to drag you away. And then the next verse describes what it is that you're being dragged away to. Verse 15, death. This isn't a catch and release kind of thing. Your temptation draws you in, promises life, promises hope, promises comfort, and then snags you and drags you, not to the life that it promised, but actually to death. The, the second image here he uses is that of, of, uh, of conception, of a very tiny baby going from the embryonic stage to fully grown. And so he says, desire when it has conceived, that's childbearing language, gives birth to sin. And when it's fully grown, it brings forth, and that word brings forth is literally to birth, brings forth death. So when, when desire is, is benign, it's something, there's many desires that are good, right? Beauty is desirable because God made beauty. Truth and being right is desirable because God made truth. Goodness or to be upright is a good thing because God made goodness. But when you put the word self in front of each one of those things, they begin to get twisted. And they begin to draw us not towards the maker of all those things, but back into ourselves. And when sin, I, I really like the image of the embryonic stage here, because when we all know the experience of when sin is small, when you're just moving in to following and sort of being duped by whatever that temptation is, and you begin to lean into it, either with your head, or with your heart, or with your hands, you begin to lean towards that temptation, then... Uh, you begin, you know, it can feel very small and very benign and very much like, well, it's, it's not a big deal. I'm, I'm just having a bad day. I'm just, I'm just feeling that, you know, oh, just a little bit of cynicism today. It's, it's going to be okay. Or that was just a, you know, an arrogant comment, but oh, you know me sometimes. I can just be so full of myself. You know, they can start very small and very cute and very like, oh, it's just no big deal. But the further it grows, the, the uglier it becomes. And then in some sense, by the time that it's fully grown and you barely even realize what has happened, there goes that word again. You've found yourself, not life, but death. And this doesn't mean practical, physical death. It might, but more than that, death 
as it's generally conceived of in the Bible, is just talking about the, the general idea of loss, the general idea of going against the created order where life just stops working. So little hidden sins now can turn into big, ugly ones later. So just here's, a, here's just a, a chance, if you have no other time in your week, to self-reflect. Could there be anything right now that may be small and in the background and hidden that will be way better to deal with now than to deal with that thing when it's fully grown? What, what could it look like to repent both to the Lord and maybe bring somebody else honestly into whatever that struggle is now when it's small before that baby gets really big? Okay, temptation's cause. Uh, then moving into verse 16, temptation's cure. I, I love the pastoral sensitivity of, of James here. He says, do not be deceived. My beloved brothers. Like he, he's talking with this fatherly, brotherly, filial kind of language where, hey, I, I love you guys. I love you ladies. I, I, want, I don't want you to go down those paths. I've been down. This is, he's an old man by this point. He's saying, I've been down those paths. I've been tempted and tried. I've been duped. I've been lured. I've been enticed. And it just keeps not working. It keeps not delivering on what it says it's going to deliver. Brothers, sisters, don't go that way. Don't be deceived. Don't take the bait, to use that metaphor. Um, there's a really helpful image in Proverbs 9 that describes, uh, it, it describes temptation like a woman who is luring you into her home. It says it like this. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat in the high places of the town, calling to those who pass by, uh, who, pass by who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. So this, this picture that the writer of Proverbs is drawing is like this woman is inviting you over to her house to do, to do all sorts of things that you're being tempted to do that you know are wrong, but you continue to follow deeper and deeper and deeper. You go into the home, you sit down at the dinner table, and you look around the table, and what is sitting around the table is dead bodies. Right? And so he says again, don't be deceived. We enter the house of temptation expecting life, but we ultimately get death. And this is something that the New Testament Romans picks up, and it, it, it's so clear over and over and over again. And we, you know, this is one of the, the easiest verses to quote and one of the hardest verses to live. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. We know this, yet we continue to go to it time and time and time again. But please, Jeremy, will you get me to the good news? Verse 17. Every good gift 
And every perfect gift is from above, coming down from who? From the Father of lights. There's another half to Romans 6.23. The wages of sin, yeah, it's death. We've all experienced that. And ultimately, in the eternal sense, if those things are not dealt with in Christ, then there is only one other way, and that is eternal death, separation from everything good in creation and from the maker of creation, God himself. But, the wages of sin is death, but, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We know that we are born spiritually bankrupt. We know, even from experience, that from the first moments that we are born, we are not what we should be. From the first moments that we are born, we are born into this body that is breaking down. That there are even in, in the youngest of babies, there can be uh, birth defects, there can be brokenness, there can be diff different medical issues that we look at and say, that shouldn't be. And then we continue to grow up and we realize more and more as we're children and as we're teenagers, as we grow into adults and we become more and more self-reflective, we see, oh gosh, there's just so much in here. God, help. But we know we're not made for death, don't we? We know when we experience it. We know from every casket that we sit beside, we're not made for this. This isn't right. Something is wrong with this picture. Something is wrong with this world. And it's built into us that we know that God is real and we know that there's something wrong with this picture. And so it says that the Father of lights is the, really the true giver of all good gifts. Father of lights meaning creator of all things. And what does he long to do? He longs to give every good gift, every good gift of himself, every good gift of created order, of creation, everything we enjoy. It's been said that the reason that temptation is so strong is because God made such fun stuff in the world. He's made a great world, and he's made so much to enjoy. But it has to be joy, enjoyed rightly in the order and not in and of ourself. And so the, the greatest gift then, if the Father loves to give good gifts, then what is the greatest gift that he has given? Is the gift of his Son. The, the greatest gift that he has given is perfect righteousness. We read in Hebrews 4, uh, in the assurance of pardon, that Jesus is tempted in every way. I like pausing every time I say that in a sermon. Because just to sit with that thought for a minute, what would it look like to be tempted in every way? You're not alone. You don't have to feel sleazy. You don't have to feel awful. You don't have to feel other. Like something's wrong with you. Those things happen to the Son of God. You're a mess. But he experienced those same things. Yet, in all the ways that you and I then begin to lean in, and take the bait. He said, no, no thanks. The only thing I want to do, the only satisfaction in this world that I want to have is to do the will of my Father. I love doing what my Father tells me to do. He even says, that's my bread. That's how I fill myself, is by doing what the Father tells me to do. 
And so our ultimate satisfaction cannot come from the things of this world. Our ultimate satisfaction comes from the Father of lights, who then, rightly related to him, we can enjoy everything that he's given us. And so he gives us this perfect gift of righteousness through the perfect life of Christ, meaning that we can know whatever temptations and sins and other things that you wish weren't there today, and you can count them, and you can write them down, and you can tell your friends about them, or there's things you probably wouldn't want to tell your friends or family about, and each one of those things, each one of those things cannot separate you from his love. Because he has given you the perfect gift of righteousness in Christ. Then not only that, he experiences the worst of the death that you and I should experience. If we know that the wages of sin is death, then what is Jesus experiencing on the cross? He is experiencing the yuck, the shame, the grief, the mess of everything that you and I have done. Tempted in every way, yet without sin. And at the end of his life, he does not get a a triumphant entry that ends in him being enthroned, but it ends with him being put in a tomb. But we know that that's not the end of the story. We know that uh, if we move on to the next verse, brought forth by the word of truth, of his will he brought us forth by the word of truth. So we know from John 3, and this is kind of confusing, it confused Nicodemus, and it can confuse us even today when Jesus says, yeah, you got to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, wait, what? what is what like how am i born i've already been born how am i born again it's like in the sandlot how can i have some more if i've already had some there's you you can't be born again jesus don't you know anything about anatomy and jesus says no there's a new way to be born here and that way to be born is through the word of truth you're like Uh, there are many who have read the book of James and gone, I don't understand, there's no gospel in the book of James. It all seems like a bunch of stuff for me to do. I don't see any good news. I don't see any grace. I don't see any Jesus. I just see a bunch of stuff to do. Here it is. If you see it nowhere else, see it here. He was by his own will, not by your good works, not because you were good enough, but by his will, by his decision, because he looked at you, because he looked at you, because he looked at you and said, I love you. Not because of anything you did, but because I'm setting my love on you. By his will, he gave you his spirit. And like a little tiny embryo, that spirit began to work inside your heart. And then you apprehended him by faith. And then that faith began to grow inside of you and it began to change you. And it began to, for every Christian, this is how it goes. It grows, you may have heard the term baby Christian, right? And we all move along from milk to meat, from a baby Christian to one who is fully mature, built up into Christ, who is the head. This is the movement of the spiritual life and it does not first happen because of us apprehending Jesus, but it happens first because Jesus has apprehended us. This is the good news of the gospel. So there's this uh, incredible way 
that C.S. Lewis has with words. I know I've quoted him once already today, and I'm going to do it again just because I can't get enough. Um, there's a book I've mentioned called The Great Divorce. You've got to read it. And there's, there's a scene in there. It's a fictional book, um, and there's a scene in there that he describes. The narrator is watching this scene take place between sort of a ghostly kind of character, a ghostly man. You can almost see through him. He's described as kind of oily and dark, but kind of see-through almost. And he has a red lizard on his shoulder. And it says that that red lizard is whispering in his ear and is flapping his tail back and forth, whispering all kinds of temptation, all kinds of temptation in his ear. And, and then the narrator says, and then this bright, shining, giant man, who I then understood to be an angel, approached this ghostly character. And the angel says, do you want me to kill him? Do you want me to kill that little red lizard so he's not whispering in your ear anymore? And he says, oh, that would be great. That would be great. I would just love to have this little lizard off of my shoulder. And then the scene unfolds that the angel grows a little closer. And it, it describes that there's not only light coming off of him, but there's also heat. And as the angel grows closer and grows closer and begins to, to put his hands around the lizard, the man says, no, stop. Stop, I didn't say kill me. I said kill the lizard. And the angel replies, I'm not going to kill you. And he says, well, then why does this hurt so bad? And the angel says, I didn't say it wouldn't hurt. Do you want me to kill it? He says, I wish you would have done it already. It could have been over by now. And he says, I can't do it without your will. Do you want me to kill it? Yes or no? And he says, can you do it later? He says, there is no later. The time is now. Do you want me to kill it? And he says, oh, just go on already. And as he screams this cry of agony, the angel grabs the red lizard and crushes him and throws him on the ground. And you think the scene is going to be over. But what happens next is the best part. Because as the angel squeezes and throws the red lizard on the ground, almost immediately the narrator describes that the ghostly man begins to change. And he begins to grow in stature. And he begins to fill in. And he begins to look more solid and more real. His stature grows. He becomes bigger. He becomes, he becomes as it is, more bright. More who he was supposed to be. And then that little lizard on the ground begins to move. And he begins to grow hind haunches. And he begins to grow stout front shoulders. And he pops up and he grows bigger and bigger. And he starts to turn white. And he, he grows bigger and bigger. And then it turns into this beautiful, glorious white horse with a golden tail and a golden mane. And that man grabs that mane, jumps on that horse, and rides as it was almost flying into the distance. And it says, he was scaling mountain peaks I couldn't even believe were possible. This is a description. Oh, I forgot the best part. forgot the best part. Here's the angel's comment on the whole thing. Lust is a poor, weak, whimpering thing compared with that richness 
and energy of desire which will arise when lust has been killed. Every sin, every temptation is a lesser love. It's an invitation not to a greater life, but to a lesser one. And James is saying, brothers, sisters, don't fall for it. I've fallen for it time and time again. Don't fall for it. There is a greater love. There is a greater life than the one that you're experiencing now. And it comes not by giving in to everything you want. In many ways, it comes by, for the meantime, saying no. But as you say no, as the angel, as it was, says, do you want me to kill it? And little by little, you begin to hand those things over to him. And it may feel like death. And it may feel like I'm never going to get anything I want ever again. Here's my control. Here's my uh, here's my, my approval. Here's my anger. Here's my lust. Here's my whatever. You have it. I don't know what I'm going to do because that was the only thing that I had that made me feel good at all. And here it is. But the trust, the faith that that can begin to, to produce can grow. And like something that starts in an embryonic phase can grow into something big and beautiful. It can grow into a full life. And so what trial is he putting you through right now? What temptation are you feeling as he puts you through that trial? And the biggest question of all from James this morning, this afternoon, is what might God be killing for your good and for his glory? What might he be killing in you so that you could not have a less than life, but a greater one? You give up control he gives you faith. You give up despair. He gives you patience. You give up bitterness. He gives you love. Will you let him kill it? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. You were killed. And we should have been. And so every bit of hurt or pain or discomfort that we may feel, we can trust that because our Father has already laid every bit of wrath he had out on the table and he put it on Jesus, we can trust that every bit of heat that we feel from you is actually generating good. So we give you our temptations. We give you our fault. We give you our failures. We give you our hopes. We give you our aspirations. Have your way. Do with them what you will. You're a better God than we are. You're a better father and a better control, in better control of the universe than we ever could be. We give you our lives by faith and we ask that you would turn it into something beautiful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.